Well, a very good morning to you all. I was told last week uh, that the broadcast looked like it had come from a Young Offenders Institute, and I'm not really uh, sure what that means, whether it's a reference to this wall behind us, I don't know, or a reference to the clothing I was wearing, as I wasn't wearing a shirt, I was wearing a hoodie instead. Big apologies for that. I have got a shirt on again this morning, so we can all rest easy. If you'd like to have Mark chapter 12 open, where we read earlier, that will really help this morning. I'm going to pray and then we'll make a start. Father, we do ask that you would help us this morning as we open your word. Help us to receive it as the living word of the King of Kings. And help us to respond in a way that is appropriate if that is true. Help us to bow the knee before what we hear this morning. For we ask it in your name. Amen. <clears throat> well, now, growing up in the modern world has its disappointments for a child. And one disappointment for me was realising that kings and queens in the real world are nothing like those that you read about in the storybooks. Or even like those that you read in history books or you hear about at school. Kings and queens are supposed to rule, aren't they? To make laws, to change laws, to chop off people's heads if they don't keep the laws that they have made. I mean, a proper king or a proper queen, for that matter, will take your head off uh, even if he or she takes a dislike to you. That's a real monarch, isn't it? That's what they did in the storybooks. And we used to have monarchs a bit like that even here in England. Kings and queens who ruled with an iron fist. I mean, just think of Henry VIII or, or Bloody Mary to name just two of them. But we simply don't expect or accept that kind of rule from royalty anymore today, do we? That's not how we expect kings to behave. It's just the stuff of legends now, I guess. What we expect from royalty, kind of disappointingly, is largely someone who is photogenic and good for the tourism industry. It's quite sad. In Jesus's day, of course, kings held a lot more power than that. Although at this point within the Roman Empire, uh, this would be curbed by the emperor himself. Of course, you're always ruling underneath another authority. You're not an ultimate king. But you just need to look at the incident with Herod and John the Baptist. Do you remember that earlier on? To see exactly what I mean here. Herod is only the king, really, of a little backwaters kingdom of Galilee. And he can imprison and then he can behead John the Baptist just at a whim, at a birthday party. And of course, the great expectation of Israel was for the soon arrival of their true king, the Messiah, the real king of Israel. And they were waiting for a figure to arise who would liberate Israel from her enemies and again restore the nation to her former glory. There were loads of Old Testament prophecies about this coming king that they could read and I'm sure they did and so there were doubtless because there's so many places they could look it up there were doubtless many different interpretations as, as there always is and different expectations perhaps about just what this king would be like and how the promises of God 
uh, that God had made would all work out in history. In fact, the same is largely true in Orthodox Judaism today, isn't it? Many are still waiting for the arrival of their Messiah. Uh, and that Messiah, Messiah, they understand, will lead the world into an age of peace and understanding. One thing seems to be constant, though, and has been for thousands of years, certainly since the days of Jesus. The expectation was back then, and is even now today, that this Messiah figure will be a descendant of David, Israel's greatest ever king. One of the most clear prophecies of this came through the prophet Nathan, directly to David, the king. And you can read about it in the book of uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here in this chapter, God promised that he would um, raise from David an offspring who would sit on his throne uh, and that he would establish that throne forever. It's quite a promise. And it was under the rule of King David that the Philistines the last of the enemies, the big enemies of the nation at that time, were finally subdued and Israel had peace for the first time. And I guess that's kind of what characterised David's legacy, don't you think? A legacy of finished, defeated enemies and peace and ushering in an, ushering in an era of prosperity. I guess that was what most people commonly hoped for in the nation a thousand years later in the days of Jesus. Another David, that's what they wanted to see. But listen, that was far too low an expectation. That's what we're gonna see this morning. And so with that background in mind, let's take a look now at these few but very important verses that we've just had read to us from Mark chapter 12. I've got three points this morning to help you to follow along if you're into that. The first is this, the scribes exposed, and then the Christ exalted, and thirdly, the crowds entertained. Now the conflict between Jesus and the Sanhedrin is ongoing still. That's what's been going on up until this point, hasn't it? In an effort to trap and to destroy him, they have asked their carefully crafted questions and Jesus has masterfully answered each one of them so as to leave his questioners dumbstruck. Uh, and they're dumbstruck at his wisdom and at his authority in the way that he answers the questions. And understandably, as Mark indicates in verse 37, if you look, by this time a large crowd has gathered they're watching. They want to listen in. And Jesus is taking this opportunity to teach them. Take a look at verse 35 with me. Having answered all of their questions, Jesus follows up with a question of his own here. H have a look. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David. Now the title Christ is basically just a Greek version of the Hebrew title Messiah. Same word. 
So we're on the topic then of this mysterious prophesied king. Jesus asked the crowds, hey, you've all heard what your teachers are saying in the synagogues and in the temple. They say that when Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, he will be a son of David. Now, we know this is what they taught, don't we? In fact, when Herod the Great, if you remember back in the birth narrative of Jesus, when he was trying to locate and destroy the Christ decades earlier, he had called in this same group, the teachers of the law and the priests, who were also, back then even, able to quickly identify Bethlehem as the place of birth of the Christ. They knew who they were looking for and they knew where to look to find him. And clearly this teaching about the Christ had spread far and wide amongst the people. The son of David, born in David's town, Bethlehem. And the people were pretty good at putting two and two together in Jesus's day. When Jesus arrives on the scene and they see prophecy being fulfilled in front of them. Matthew records that after Jesus had healed a blind and mute man back in Galilee, he says this in Matthew chapter 12, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? You know what they're saying, don't you? Could this be the Messiah? And Mark actually told us back in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel that even on his way in from Jericho, as he's leaving Jericho, do you remember that blind man Bartimaeus had cried out to Jesus to stop him, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So clearly these things were starting to tally up for the people. But that doesn't seem to have been the case for those who really should have known best the teachers of the people themselves, these scribes and priests and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. It's very hard to change someone's mind, isn't it? The 16th century French philosopher Michel de Montaigne said, stubborn and ardent clinging to one's opinion is the best proof of stupidity. But it seems actually that Frenchman was just fleshing out an old axiom of the ancient Greek philosopher and dude, if you look at this picture, Sophocles. I mean, that's an amazing beard. I don't think I'm going to grow mine like that. But Sophocles said this, stubbornness and stupidity are twins. Resolutely holding to your opinions in the light of clear, contradictory evidence is the essence of folly, isn't it? And the fruit, it's also the fruit of a heart that is hardened by pride. We've seen it over and over again with these leaders, haven't we? It does seem to be essentially what we see amongst the Sanhedrin here, the leaders of Israel. The Sanhedrin full of priests, the pious, the teachers of the law, and yet they appear to be so blind. But I don't think that Jesus asks this question and says what follows to either belittle or discredit or to attack them. He'll expose their wickedness in the paragraph that comes after, actually, if you just hold on till next week. But here I think we see in Jesus 
one final last-ditched attempt to get them to think, to open their minds, to grasp who in fact it is that is standing before them. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he did that even amongst those who were determined to reject him. Very lost indeed. Mark, and in fact four other of the gospel writers, all four of the gospel writers, tell us that after the crucifixion there was, it was a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, who asked for Jesus's body and who buried him in his own tomb. He'd secretly become a disciple. And he was accompanied himself by the prominent Pharisee named Nicodemus. Well, it would be amazing to think, wouldn't it, that this was the very incident that we're looking at this morning at the temple here that turned the light on, that switched on that light for Joseph of Arimathea. But we're jumping ahead and we haven't really gotten into the essence of this question yet. Let's see what it is exactly that Jesus is asking. Have a look with me. Jesus asks, verse 35, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? There's the question. And can you see what it is really that Jesus is saying here? The teachers of the law all agree. The Christ is the son of King David. Okay, so then how do you explain Psalm 110? Because that's what Jesus is quoting here in verse 36. Here you've got a psalm written by David himself, like many of the psalms were. How do we know this one is one of David's? Because it's actually got his name at the top of it. If you turn to Psalm 110, you'll see a psalm of David. They knew who wrote it. A good number of the psalms have those superscriptions before they begin and they give you the name of the author so you know who wrote them. And Psalm 110 also was very well known as a psalm of David. It was in fact a coronation hymn which was usually sung or recited or chanted at the inauguration of a new king of Judah or Israel. But with the destruction of the monarchy uh, in Israel and finally in Judah in the 6th century BC, this psalm began to be understood as prophetically describing the Messiah who was to come, the 2 Samuel 7 son of David. And that would be how the scribes understood this psalm being quoted. Now, Jesus actually reinforces this by reminding them, if you take a look in verse 36, that this psalm here is David speaking by the Holy Spirit, i.e. he's speaking prophetically with a deeper than just a surface meaning here. But Jesus now points his audience to the opening line of the psalm and there's something interesting here that you might miss because of the way that our English Bibles translate it. The two occurrences of the word Lord are different from each other. They're two different words. 
The first occurrence translates the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The second occurrence of the word Lord translates the word Adonai, which literally means Lord, as in king, ruler. In fact, Adonai was often used as a synonym for God, so that you could avoid using the word Yahweh. So it reads something like this. God, the great covenant creator God, declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies are put under your feet. Which makes sense at a coronation back in the day when it was penned, when a third party quotes it about the new king of Israel. But if this is in fact David writing prophetically about the Messiah to come, something interesting is going on here. Because then David is in fact calling the Messiah, my Lord. And the question of the day in verse 37 then follows. Why is David calling his son Lord? Why would the mighty King David, the King, bow down to his son as Lord and King of himself? My King, my Lord. Even if his son turned out to be a, a better king or a greater king than he was, that is surely inappropriate language. And the only answer that makes sense is for the son of David to be far more than just another human king in his family line. If David calls him Adonai, he must be more than a mere man. And what Jesus is doing here is similar to his interaction then with the Sadducees just earlier on in the chapter when they came to him with that question about marriage and the resurrection. Do you remember? Their expectation and their understanding of the resurrection was entirely inadequate. They just thought that what was meant by the resurrection was a simple continuation of our current earthly existence. To which Jesus responds by saying, no, no, we'll be like the angels in heaven. It's not going to be like this at all. Likewise, the understanding of Messiah amongst these teachers was also entirely inadequate. They just thought that he would be another earthly king. Continuation again of the situation we've got now, maybe a bit better. And yet again, Jesus highlights an ignorance amongst them of both the scriptures and the power of God. It has become popular amongst the sceptics even today, hasn't it? To claim that the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus was actually God, was an invention of the early church. Uh, they go on about something to do with bishops in a dark, smoky room in the fourth century Nicaea, making all manner of outrageous pronouncements. And it's all a load of rubbish, obviously, the history books would tell you that. But can you see actually here how Jesus directs the crowds to this truth of the deity of Christ, the godness of the Christ, in a text found 1,000 years before he was even born? And the church in the first century reveled in this truth. 
saying of Jesus things like this. God has placed all things under his feet and has appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. And they said things like this. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They're quite amazing statements, aren't they? That second one may well have been a hymn sung in the early church, in those first days of the church. Oh, they knew the Messiah was the Son of God. But this is a stunning revelation, isn't it? It's like Jesus is asking again, this time for the sake of those who have set themselves up as his enemies. Hey, what about you? You individually. Who do you say that I am? Weigh the evidence, teacher of the law, scribe. You've seen it with your own eyes. Go back to your books, read them carefully, especially texts like this, and soften your hearts. Open your eyes for just a moment. Who do you say I am? Have you ever done that? Doubtless you have an opinion, uh, an opinion about Jesus. Most people have, haven't they? But what is that opinion based on? How have you judged your opinion about Jesus? Have you looked carefully at the evidence ever? Have you opened a Bible? Have you read a gospel account? Or are you perhaps going on something that somebody told you once? Or a documentary you once saw? Or a soundbite from some atheist somewhere? Or perhaps you just know simply because you know and actually, all this stuff in the Bible would be far too fantastical. I haven't really got time for it. How, how have you made up your opinion about Jesus? The unfortunate thing is that Mark seems to indicate that the response of the crowds here in the temple courts was really not much better or better informed. They're just really entertained. At the end of verse 37, he tells us this. The large crowd... Listen to him with delight. They're lapping it up. But we don't know what's delighted the most. Is it Jesus's incredible wisdom? Or the fact that those theological heavy hitters of the Sanhedrin are being taken down a notch by this backwaters rabbi from the north? And it's all very entertainment, very entertaining for them. Jesus did say some incredible things. Every religion, have you noticed, so many religions, they want to quote Jesus or to claim him as a prophet in some way. Didn't Gandhi famously say, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians, he went on to say, but I like your Christ, he said. He saw something admirable because there is something extremely attractive about Jesus and about the words that he said. Many of the things he said people love. But the content of what Jesus is saying here is actually far from entertaining when you look at it. Take a look again at what David says there, quoted in verse 36. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What is it that God says to David's Lord? 
He says, sit at my right hand. That is the side of power. That is to be given authority, the authority of the throne, the authority of God. And to sit in itself is to be settled down, is to be established there, to be established in the authority of God. God has given David's king, David's lord, all authority over the cosmos. He rules over everything, everywhere. And as for his enemies, look, as for all who might oppose him, perhaps a sting to those who've been attacking him, it is only a matter of time, says David, until every one of them is put under his feet, subject, subject to him. This is a king far more awesome and powerful than any that the world has ever seen. One of the most well-known psalms about the Messiah is Psalm 2. You should take a read of it this afternoon. It's an incredible psalm. Amazing picture. This psalm paints a picture of God establishing his mighty king, the Messiah, on the throne, ruler of all. And it ends with this warning, which is very apt for us to finish with this morning. It's in verse 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Listen, as an ambassador of this king, then, I make my appeal to you this morning. And first of all, it's to those of you who are not his. You're not his people. See, Jesus certainly came to seek and save lost sinners. He was so loving, so kind. He loved his enemies. And we see him doing that right here at the temple. And he loves you and he holds out salvation even today. He holds out salvation freely to all who will come to him. But when he returns, when Jesus comes back, it will be as a conquering king to judge and to destroy those who have not bowed the knee to him. And that psalm there warns you, doesn't it? If you are wise, you will kiss the sun. That is, you will come to him for mercy while there's still time. The psalm ends by telling you, you know, the best and happiest place. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Take refuge in him before it is too late. And a final word to those of you who are his people. Do not domesticate Jesus. We mustn't do that. Even when serving, says this psalm, serve him with fear. That, that simply means remember who he is. Remember who you are. Serve him reverently. And we should do that every day, shouldn't we? And the psalm goes on to say, when you rejoice in him, interesting, isn't it? Do so with trembling. Tremble even as you rejoice. Remember what he is like and who he is. Well, let's just end 
this morning with a wonderful picture, again from C.S. Lewis, that incredible author. He paints for us a great picture uh, when he portrays Jesus uh, as, as his figure in his Narnia books of Aslan. And he paints him as a lion, a great, powerful, mighty lion, Aslan. And the children have not yet had an encounter with Aslan. And so the children ask about him and, and they ask when they find out that he's a lion, they say to him, will it be safe even to meet this great, mighty lion? And they're told, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's our king. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for those who have never bowed the knee to you this morning, Lord. May they bow the knee to you and own you as their king. We thank you that you are the welcoming king. We thank you that you have welcomed us, your people, to be yours, to take refuge in you, to know the blessing that comes from living a life in your service, the joy that comes from serving you. We thank you that you are the mighty, mighty King of Kings. We ask that you would help us to serve you and to love you with all of our hearts. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen.